nicely into the next chapter because after looking at all of the aspects here of what the Lord's Supper pictures and what is accomplished as we come, uh, this last paragraph dealing with the reality that someone who is apart from Christ might, might yet come and take these outward elements, uh, but it would only be to judgment, not unto grace. Um, we, we see there the biblical position and view that grace is what comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, these sacraments uh, follow after the experience of relationship with Jesus through his cleansing work in our lives through the gift of faith that God alone gives um, rather than the opposite view which would view these as uh, the doorway to God's grace that you must go through this outward ceremony to obtain the grace of God and that's again the opposite of the biblical view that you can't come to these things apart from having faith in Jesus you must have that faith in Jesus Christ for these sacraments um, and also true with a special respect to the Lord's Supper uh, in, in this context. Uh, there is no benefit to be had apart from having faith in Jesus. And so with all of that in view, with the, uh, with the warnings of Scripture, with the reality, the spiritual reality having to be experienced for there to be blessing to be had, and that this is to be a sharing in the, the work of Jesus on our behalf and a sharing together, as we see there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10, uh, as well as 11, that it is a discerning of the body of the Lord Jesus and a sharing with one another. There's one bread that we break together. And so, therefore, those who are outside of Christ and apart from him, those who are outside the people of God, have no seat at the table to uh, partake. They must come to Christ, and then, through him, they may be invited in. And so what, what does that mean in terms of not only their own responsibility to hear these things declared from God's Word and to uh, not sin in coming unworthily uh, as to seek to take the grace of God on their own terms rather than coming through Jesus Christ, not only should those warnings be issued and are they responsible to heed them, but as we come to the last phrase of this paragraph, we see that this also has a corresponding, uh, corresponding responsibility to the church itself in terms of who she's to offer the sacraments to. And so let's read that last paragraph and pay a special attention to the final phrase. We'll look at those scripture references and then continue on uh, with God's help. So the eighth paragraph. Although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in this sacrament, yet they receive not the thing signified thereby, but by their unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table, and cannot without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries, or be admitted thereunto. So now we come to these scripture references, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you look there, not only... Again, not only is this addressed in a way that would put responsibility on some, all, all those who would have occasion to come to the Lord's table to understand that they cannot hold on to sin and come and partake benefit of the Lord Jesus Christ in this celebration of his death in payment of sin. You can't hold on to sin and achieve any benefit in, uh, in the Lord's Supper. And you cannot reject Christ as your Savior and come and receive any benefit of this. And so with respect to the church, notice that there is this responsibility for the church as a whole to um, do what she can, uh, not only to speak the truth to that, but also to exercise 
biblical discipline within her membership so that she would not knowingly uh, be encouraging such a, a wicked thing as those who have rejected the Lord Jesus in their lives, continuing on with a charade of uh, enjoying the benefits of being a believer in Jesus. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we start in verse 1 for the context. Paul writing here, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And what that's a description of, we refer to as excommunication, uh, the reverse of welcoming someone into the fellowship of the church upon their profession of faith in Jesus. Well, what is to be done in the very sad occasion when one of those who had professed faith in Christ renounced that faith in Christ, whether by their, their open statement or, in this case, by a life of such wicked sin and rejection of God and His standard of right and wrong as to be tantamount to a rejection of their faith in Christ. And it is, it's the, the reverse of welcoming them in. It is to put them out. You are to, as it's described here in verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That is, he's put outside the protection of the fold. He has rejected the good shepherd, and he is to sense the effect of that in the separation of fellowship with the people of God. He shouldn't be, it's no kindness to him to give him the sense, the false sense, that all is well. Here he has, in his own life, rejected Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Christ condemns in no uncertain terms this gross sin, but this man has chosen the sin and rejected the Christ. And so Paul's instructions are very clear. And it's not even... In some final act, notice in verse 5, it is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, that by God's grace, this would be a wake-up call. It would be uh, an alarm to this man who had clearly wanted to maintain that all was well. He had wanted to continue on as a member in the church and all be considered well. Uh, Paul says, no, you have to speak the truth to him. You have to tell him the significance of this. You have to put him outside the fellowship of the church, outside the protection of the people of God, uh, over back in that kingdom of darkness that he had once fled out of uh, by his profession of faith in Christ uh, so that he would be awoken to the danger of his position and ultimately be saved. Now, that's sadly not always realized. There are many occasions where, to the best we can see, church discipline that gets to this point is not followed by a repentance. It, it can happen. It does not always happen. There are other goals that Paul describes being accomplished, not just for that man, but for the protection of the honor of God's name and for the protection of God's people. Uh, from the corrupting influence of sin. Those also are goals that are accomplished by this. But in this instance, uh, if you go on to read in 2 Corinthians, God did just this. He did work repentance in this man who had, uh, again, deceived himself to a point that he was telling himself, I can, I can be right with God, I can be a child of God, I can be a member of the people of God and still live in this openly sinful way. Uh, the Lord 
touched his heart and used in some way this excommunication in this man's life. And he did, he was broken and humbled in repentance. And the second Corinthians letter, we have the instructions about his restoration, uh, that they should forgive him, they should receive him back, that that's not the end of God's grace for him if he repents and returns to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And so in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened? Now, we had previously looked at this passage. It goes on to speak about the Passover, Christ being our Passover lamb that we have this individual exercise of putting out of our own lives the leaven of sin, the the leaven of malice and evil, and celebrating uh, the deliverance of ourselves from the bondage of the old land of Egypt, of the old sinful man, and the dominion of sin in our lives, uh, celebrating that continually in the Lord Jesus. But notice the context that leads into that instruction in verse 6, is not even primarily focused upon individual sanctification. It's certainly not arguing against it. But the first thing in view here is as a body of believers, as a church of the people of God, they had within their membership a leaven of sin that was being unrepented of, it was being boasted in, it was being glorified, and it would leaven their lump it would um, bring corruption and be the destruction of not just that man, but it would have a pervasive and corrupting influence in the church. And so that is, is the first thing in view as he calls them to cleanse out the old leaven. Uh, if, if there is someone who had once made a profession of faith in Christ, but then has renounced that with a life of open sin, and they refuse to repent. They refuse to hear the word of God and express repentance and brokenness. Well, the church is called not to countenance and encourage that rebellion against the Lord Jesus. And so in terms of the confession and the statement here, or be admitted thereunto, uh, this is in, in respect to the church's responsibility, not only the individual who might have occasion to come to the table and their own conscience before God and knowing what the consequences are of desecrating the sacrament that God offers to his own children. Uh, but the church is to have a responsibility as well in, as well as in terms of even offering uh, the experience of coming to the Lord's t- table. There's to be this, this care taken that there not be those deceived into thinking they could come on any other terms than uh, a living faith in Jesus Christ and a walk with him in fellowship. And so if we keep reading, verse 13 is the last of the references, but let's just read till we reach that. In, um, in verse 7, For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so it's not to be done in self-righteousness, certainly. It's not to be done in pride. It's not to be done with with a delight in judgment. But there is a sober responsibility that God has given His church to speak the truth, not just to those outside the church, but have this special responsibility for those within, those bearing the name of brother. We we can't just 
hold our peace and carry on as though nothing were wrong when we come to a case of someone who bears the name of brother but is living this life of open rejection of the law of God, the standard of what God says is right or wrong. And notice especially there, um, not, not even to eat with such a one. And if that has application to our daily fellowship, uh, how much more does it have an application to coming to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, with such restrictions upon uh, those who might come to their benefit? Let's look then at Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And so again, we're looking to see the responsibility of the larger church, of us, toward one another, that we would not only consider our own heart and life as we come to the Lord's table, but in humility and love and care for one another, that we would remember we have a God-given responsibility toward one another, that we should be have concern and care for the life and testimony and spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ within our church family. Uh, we, again, the Lord Jesus is so clear in Matthew 7. This is not a license or a call to be sanctimonious or prideful or arrogant or fault-finding. We're, we're to have a heart of love that delights to bear with one another, to cover one another's sins in the, in the grace of God. But what is in view here is a, a, a case where the sin is not just incidental, but has been rooted in a person's life and heart, where it's become uh, uh, something they are holding to and following after instead of rejecting in receiving the forgiveness of God for. And so here again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." And so again, it, it strikes a jarring note to our ears in our day and time of uh, such an emphasis on just leave, you know, everybody leave, leave each other alone, stay in your own lane, be tolerant. Uh, that in love, God calls his people to have concern for one another. Uh, again, far from any arrogant or prideful looking down upon one another in our weaknesses, but that we would not just ignore the fact. If we see one of our brothers or sisters in the Lord Jesus beginning to wander away from the Lord, the Good Shepherd, that that would have a, a, an impact. Again, remembering that the basis of our relationship with one another is what? It's our relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's the very foundation of our relationship to one another. And so when one of us evidences that they are leaving or, or betraying or walking away from their relationship with the Lord Jesus, it, it follows it has to have an impact on our relationship to them. And again, it's not, uh, it's not just with a hard heart and an unfeeling mind that we would say, well, you know, there's another one that's, that's left. No, this... this 
speaks of uh, an anguish of soul that we would with grief recognize the reality of a person's spiritual condition if they are refusing to heed and notice what Paul wrote there especially if if they do not hear this this command in verse 14 if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter why because it's the word of God because this is what God is telling his people to do and if someone refuses to receive the word of God what does that speak of them what does it speak of their relationship with the Lord Jesus all of us have the common struggle with sin and by God's grace all of God's children have the common Savior in the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God within us giving us the power and the strength to fight sin and to overcome temptation and growing daily in our, our sanctification in the Lord. Uh, but we, we must not um, confuse that with, with just embracing sin, with continuing in sin and living in sin with no regard for the correction of the Lord Jesus. Let's go then to Matthew 7. This is a conclusory statement here to a much more familiar passage. We'll begin with the familiar passage and um, hopefully we'll, we'll gain a better appreciation of the, of the whole. In verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, it's easy to just take snatch a phrase or two out of the scriptures and make it mean whatever we wish it to. And those first phrases, judge not that you be not judged, has there ever been a verse more misquoted in, in the Bible? Uh, as, as though we're to abandon all moral judgments on all issues. Well, that's clearly not what Jesus is saying, much as also this ur- urging and this, this call to apply the standard to ourselves and then in humility be in a position to help others. It's not calling us to, if, if, you, uh, if you think you see a speck in your brother's eye, just ignore that. Just leave your brother alone and mind your own business. That's not the significance of this. It is to apply the same standard to yourself, to recognize the very great nature of your own sin, to deal with it, and then in humility and in a right relationship with God, what? You're in a position to humbly and helpfully come to your brother and say, Brother, there's, there's something in your life that I think is displeasing to God. And let me, let me pray with you about it. Uh, let me help you see in God's word where he gives the instruction that would correct this in your life. And let, let, me, let me encourage you with how God's delivered me in many more experiences and expressions of sin in my own life. And let's come to the Lord Jesus together and seek his grace in this, in this area in, in your life. That's what Jesus is speaking about. So it, it has very much to do with our relationship with one another, our responsibility toward one another, and Again, far from saying that he's condemning or prohibiting us making any moral judgments. Well, the rest of the passage shows so quickly that that's not the case. How do we determine what a speck is? Uh, Something that's out of place, that shouldn't be there. By God's word, by that standard that God has given. And the deliverance of those things in our lives comes through the power and grace of God. And so he he speaks to that in in the next few verses. And then we come to verse 6. Another judgment is being called for and assumed as we are to obey this instruction. Do not give dogs what is holy 
And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, these aren't literal animals being referred to, just as it's not uh, pearls that are literal. I don't think Jesus was looking at at a lot of people with great possessions of pearls. Most of his teachings were to the very humble and the poor in these crowds. But these were animals that in the Old Testament economy, which is the context of Jesus' teaching still, uh, were representations of what was unclean. It was what was apart from God and was picturing those people who were not right with God, had no basis upon which to seek that gracious repentance together as contrasted with a brother when you look at the instructions preceding this. The difference is if it's a brother, if it's a brother who's dealing with, struggling with, suffering from some expression of sin in his life, you deal with yourself, then you go to your brother. You don't just leave him to to suffer, and that's the reality of sin. It is like the speck in the eye. It's not just that it violates a standard of righteousness it does it causes misery and heartache and suffering as well and so you love your brother and you're trying to help him that's the contrast that we come to in verse six Uh, the dogs the pigs this this would be those that are not brothers those that are not loving god those that are not fellow partakers of the grace of god that's the that's the only solution for sin The only help for sin is found in the grace of God and in his forgiveness and his power and his deliverance. And only a child of God can experience that. So it's not to say that we shouldn't share the gospel. So many calls to that in the scriptures. But you can't expect to come to someone and deal with a matter of sanctification when they've not even responded with faith to the gospel. They don't have any basis by which to deal with sin in their life productively. And what will happen if you try in a misguided attempt? If you just skip over sharing the gospel with them, you've not led them to see the Lord Jesus as their Savior. They're not sensible of their sin in any sense of repentance and faith in Christ. But if you just press on, you're going to jump straight to there's something in your life that you need to repent of. Well, Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. There's no basis for that to be helpful. You must share the gospel with them. Uh, You can't just go on a crusade of holiness with someone that doesn't even have the means of dealing with sin active in their lives. And so, again, that, that brings us to another judgment moral judgment or assessment, if you will, in terms of when we see sin around us, and we see sin in ourselves, but we see sin around us, we're to assess, now, is this person that's exhibiting this sin, are they a brother? Are they someone that is a fellow member of the family of God? Then I need to look at these first five verses. I need to be humble. I need to be uh, dealing with myself, and then I need to go and help him. There's no room for just leave the brother to suffer with this speck in his eye. That's not in these verses. Uh, but if we if we assess, you know, this is someone that they don't even know. They don't understand the destructive power of sin. They've not expressed any faith in God's Savior. Uh, they don't have regard for the grace of God in their lives. Uh, then <clears throat> I, can't, I can't deal with this head on as a matter of repentance. I have to approach them uh, with first just prayer for their salvation. And Jesus urges that uh, you, you do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. So not prohibiting what is commanded elsewhere that we pray for those who persecute us, or that we share the gospel, we seek to be the light in the world that Christ is within us. That's all true, but in this matter of what, what follow-ups is appropriate when we assess that there's sin in someone's life? Well, 
if they're apart from Christ, there's, there's nothing that you can directly do in their life to seek deliverance from sin. It's only going to come through faith and repentance, faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, again, what is appropriate? What is appropriate for um, coming together to the Lord's table? It, it depends upon the prior reality, the experience of the common effect of the death of the Lord Jesus by faith. We have to have come to faith in Christ that we might then come to the table and enjoy that. And so much as Jesus taught in Matthew 7, we have to have that discernment. We have to understand that there are things that are not appropriate until one comes and joins us in the family of God as a brother. While they are outside, we're to pray for them, we're to turn the other cheek when we are insulted and so forth, but we don't bear the same responsibility to seek deliverance from each individual sin in their life as we do toward a brother. All right, well, that then brings us to chapter 30, which deals with the, the representational authority in the church. Um, of church censures is the title of the chapter. And it's important to remember that the, these actions um, are on behalf of and by the entire church, but there is a government and a leadership in the church that God has appointed. Uh, how, how is the church to make such determinations? How is the church to uh, hear and evaluate an expression of faith and, and help examine uh, the fruit of that expression of faith and determine, yes, you, you have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. You're welcome to be counted. Uh, you're to be baptized if, if unbaptized at this point. You're to be welcomed into the membership of the church of the Lord Jesus and then what about on the back side? What about in that case of 1 Corinthians 5? If someone who had been welcomed in is needing to be confronted, needing to be um, confronted in their sin, and if they refuse repentance, then who is to uh, direct and conduct what Paul described there in 1 Corinthians 5, as well as intervening steps? Well, we come then to the government that Jesus Christ has appointed in the church. And so chapter 30, paragraph 1, The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. Now, there, there are a number of passages here. I hope we can get through a good number of them. I don't know that we'll get through all of them. Uh, let's, let's begin. That first statement is the key for all that follows. The Lord Jesus as king and head of his church. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the first thing we have to recognize, if we're going to talk about authority and government, especially this discussion of authority and government in the church is, who holds the authority in the church? Who has the government over the church? And it is the Lord Jesus. He is the king and the head of his church. That's, it seems obvious. We could, we could marvel at, well, why would you even need to put that in writing? Of course that's true. But if that's true, then we know just at, at the outset, well, the rest of anything else we're going to discuss and find and agree to has to come from the Lord Jesus. It's got to come from the Word of God. We're, we're immediately cut off from men coming up with their own ideas of how this should work. When, when we recognize, well, no, Jesus, he's the king and head of the church. It's his church. He's the one with all the authority in his hand. And so whose voice are we going to listen to in terms of how any government under the authority of the Lord Jesus is going to be conducted? And that glorious promise in Isaiah 9, 
about the coming Messiah. Of course, there's, there's great distress, there's gloom and anguish. Uh, in verse 2, we, we begin to see the hope that is offered through Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so... Here we have the the first and most important principle of church government, that Jesus Christ is the one on whom is resting the government. It is upon his shoulder, that authority. And not only does that tell us that we're going to find the instruction about how the government of the church is to be carried out in the word of God, But it also, from the very beginning, guards against any abuse of that authority. And there have been many in the history of the church. But any time someone who is in a position of authority or uh, government in the church, it's always a position under the king and head of the church. And there is no authority that would contradict undermine, refute, or disobey the king and head of the church. So for an example, when a pastor or elders in the church, which we see described in the scriptures, those are biblical offices, when they come to the people of God with, here's what we believe we need to do, it has to be based upon the revealed will of the Lord Jesus Christ as the king and head of the church. That's the only authority they possess is a ministerial authority to point to. Here, Remember who our king is. Here's what he says. Here's what we're going to do in obedience to what Jesus says. Now, has that always faithfully been done? No. No. It's an illegitimate usurpation, abuse of authority. You see this uh, even in the Old Testament. Some of the strongest and most chilling words in the Bible are spoken against the false shepherds who refuse to acknowledge the God of Israel, claim to speak in his name, and served their own interests instead of the Lord's. Now, you can read that in Jeremiah 23 and several other passages, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the king and head of the church. So the government is upon his shoulders. He has these divine titles. That is his claim of right over the the church. It's the claim of God over his creation. It's the claim of the Redeemer over those he has purchased. The Lord Jesus has absolute claim upon his church. He is the king and the head of the church. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to see, just jumping right in, that there is in the will, the revealed will of Christ a government then, uh, those who are to lead, those who are to govern as under-shepherds, as those who are under Christ and are, to be, are, are held accountable to him for their decisions, their leadership, and so forth. There are elders, for example. Now, there are two points, and perhaps the main point that the confession is seeking to emphasize is that the government in the church is distinct from 
the government of the state. Now, we'll, we'll spend a lot more time probably next week looking at that further, but just note at the outset that that is of, of great concern to the men who are writing this, and it's in response to claims in their day that, for example, the king of England was making that he was not only the, uh, the king on earth over the people in their outward estate as the civil king, but that that carried with it this spiritual authority as well so that he had authority in the church as well, that he was God's given uh, human figurehead authority on earth over the church. This was a, a matter of great contention. Much blood was shed over this of kings um, seeking to determine the order of service for worship, uh, kings seeking to put their own ministers. You know, they, they really didn't love, the, especially the Scottish Presbyterian pastors. They really had, uh, and it was because even though there were just a handful of delegates at this assembly from the Scottish church, George Gillespie notably among them, um, this truth that the Lord Jesus was the king and head of his church, that he governed it directly through the, the elders elected from the congregations, and that was the biblical government in the church, and, and a rejection of the king of England and Scotland as, as the God-given government who could determine how we worship, what we say in a worship service, who our pastor is, all of the rest. Um, the kings of England and Scotland, they, they really didn't appreciate that. And so one of the things that they did was exert this, uh, this claim to authority and, and start kicking these pastors out of their churches. You know, we've asked you to be polite and to leave this alone. You are taking away from our, you're criticizing us. You're not allowed to criticize us. And so we have uh, James, uh, Charles I, Charles II especially uh, guilty in this regard. But this is a, a very important point to remember it's not, it doesn't take long to lose this. And so we, we are given a great heritage in our own experience where uh, we might say, well, of course, of course the government of the church is separate from the government of the state. Well, it's been more than one time in history that that claim has been exerted. And the scriptures, of course, have given us the freedoms that we enjoy uh, but they may be lost with lack of care. Let's look at First Timothy five seventeen. Um, notice the emphasis of description. What is the job of the elders? Well, there's no denying the references to elders in the church, even in the Old Testament, especially here in the New Testament, with most immediate application to our own context. Lots of references to elders, but what do elders do? Notice 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double, double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there's a government that Christ has appointed in the church distinct from the civil government. 1 Thessalonians 5 Verse 12, notice again the, the authority or ruling or government-related uh, words in describing the officers within the church. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, that over you in the Lord is a variation on uh a term that we see often in scriptures. It's often translated bishop, but it actually literally means overseer. And again, it's it's not creating some gradation of 
of the exalted and the lowly within the church. No, Jesus, as the king and head of the church, what did he tell his own disciples? Um, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so what does, in Jesus' kingdom, what does leadership, what does responsibility and, and being in a position of government in the church involve? It involves humility. It involves service. It involves listening always carefully to the Lord Jesus and caring for and serving in love those who are your fellow members and the people of God. That's what it involves. Let's look at um, Acts 20. Acts 20, verses 17 and 18. And we'll come back to a lot of these passages, but we're just simply trying to see the biblical references to these elders in terms of the fact they had the authority, the responsibility to govern the church of the Lord Jesus under him. Acts 20, verses 17, and then verse 28. In verse 17, just noting who he's talking to. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So he's speaking to the elders. In verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So these are descriptions of authority, descriptions of government. Now, again, not to be abused. Have they ever been? Certainly, sadly. But they're not, too, they're not intended to be. And in fact, there's strong prohibition against that. It is a betrayal of the responsibility of the office when an elder in the church begins to lord it over the flock and seek his own interests and not those of the sheep and of the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 13 Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Notice there's a relationship we're beginning to see, if you've noticed it very explicit here, um, how the word of God features in the authority within the church. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then down in, down in verse 24, well, verse 17 and then um, 24. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Or down again in verse 24, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Um, we are not going to have time to get through all of these. Let's look at the last one here in verse and 1 Corinthians 12, 28. In verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, or governing, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And so it's a reminder in this passage that within the body of Christ, not all have the same gifts, not all have the same position. There are some who were called to be apostles. Are all apostles? Well, of course not. Some were called to be prophets. Are all prophets? No. Some have been given gifts that address gifts of governing or administrating there in verse 28. And so it has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit within his people in his gifting and his working among us that just as there are different gifts 
that we are to exercise to the praise of God and the benefit of the people of God. So there are different offices or roles within the church, and God has provided for uh, a separate government of the church within the church that is not in reference to civil government. Well, we have reached the end of our time this morning, but we'll look at Matthew 28, um, beginning next, next week, Lord willing. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we give thanks to you for the reminders we have had from your word this morning of the responsibility each of us bears towards one another. Lord, when we see a brother or a sister beginning to stray from you, we pray that you would touch our hearts that you would give us grace to be humble and repenting of our own sin, that we might be ready to help another. We pray that you would please touch our hearts with compassion, with humility, touch our lips with grace, that we might speak the truth in love and be of great help to one another, to admonish one another, exhort one another. Many other commands we find in your word, we pray that you would use us to that end, and in turn, we would hear with humility and grace from one another uh, as a, a brother or a sister might come to us and encourage us to consider the Word of God and apply it to some aspect of our life. We pray that we would welcome that and rejoice in the love of God's people for one another and in the grace that you show us even in the help we can offer one another. We also thank you for providing that there is only one king and head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. His authority is absolute. His claims are absolute. We pray that we would regard him always as the Lord of our own lives and that as we begin to look at this matter of the government of the church, we would have regard only to what Christ Jesus has spoken to us in his word and we would remember that all authority is to be wielded in submission to him in carrying out his will unto the good and blessing and nourishing and caring shepherding of the children of God, uh, not to their being cast down or trampled upon or fed upon. Lord, we pray that you would deliver your children in our day and time from so many who have little regard if any, for the great shepherd who stands above them. We pray that you would deliver your children from false teachers, from false shepherds, and that we might see a powerful work of your Holy Spirit to bring cleansing uh, in the church of our land and indeed throughout the world. We pray for your presence and blessing to be with your children and your people as we meet in many places all across this world. We pray that you would come and give protection and blessing and speak your word to us and give us ears to hear. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.